here tonight the history of polar aviation. And uh, we are very honored indeed, I say this most sincerely, to have Mr. Grayson to deliver this address. There can be few, if indeed any, individuals more fitted to give us an address of this sort. If I were to recount uh, Mr. Grayson's biography and all the firsts in aviation that he has done in his long distinguished career, I'd be talking for at least 20 minutes. But getting to the subject of the address tonight, he was the, one of his firsts was the London Ottawa flight and the first England Canada flight in 1934 in a Foxmoth seaplane, perhaps appropriately named Robert Bruce. Also including a first solo crossing of the Greenland ice cap. He's been a test pilot with Hawkers. He's a gentleman of very long experience in aviation and in this sphere, has been flight commodore of the aircraft attached to a whaling group, and I could go on and on. I'll say no more except to introduce Mr. Wilson to you on his address. Gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to come here to speak to you tonight. For although I've lectured in various countries, I've never before been asked to speak in Scotland. And I feel particularly honored that it's the Presswick branch of the Royal Aeronautical Society that has given me this invitation. Now, the history of polar aviation is the story of pioneering men in Arctic and Antarctic, whose work eventually led to a regular air service across the roof of the world, from Europe to Tokyo and to the west coast of North America. I'm going to try to describe this epoch of 57 years in a matter of minutes tonight. Let's first have a look at the North Polar region. You see, the North Pole is in the Polar Sea, which is in entirely covered with ice all moving continuously with the, the, the currents of, of, the, of the sea. Down here uh, is Bathurst Island, where the North Magnetic Pole is situated. It used to be in Bukia, now it's moved north into Bathurst Island. It's over a thousand miles from the North Pole. The points I should particularly ask you to remember are Spitsbergen, from which many of the early flights started, uh, Iceland, Greenland, the Canadian Arctic, Alaska, Siberia, and of course Japan. Uh, now these lines show the first route that SAS flew uh, from Copenhagen to the west coast of North America, with stops at Somniford and, and Winnipeg, and the, the latest route to Japan, with one stop at Anchorage. Also, there is the Great Surf over Siberia and China, which saves over 2,500 miles if it could be flown, and, and if someday the political situation will allow an air route to be conducted on those lines. Now I'd like to talk about the era of pioneering balloons and airships and aeroplanes. These three are the first men to fly, attempt to fly over the North Pole. There's Frankel, August Salomon Andre, a Swede, and Strindberg. Andre was the leader, and he was the true pioneer of all polar flying. In 1897, they set off on the second attempt to, to drift across the North Pole in the Balloon Eagle from Spitsbergen. It was fog, freezing in the rigging, which weighed them down, and was mainly responsible for the cause of their crash landing uh, within 400 miles of their starting point. The three men then began a desperate walk over the ice to White Island, which took them two and a half months, very rough going, where their remains were only discovered by chance uh, 33 years later. 
Now this is a remarkable photograph because it was developed from a negative which was found and was worked on and brought out over 30 years after its normal life had expired. Andres was a proud story of courage and determination in the face of overwhelming odds. By 1909, Pierre's walk to the North Pole had reduced the attraction for those who would fly there. But nevertheless, a pole called Na Lieutenant Nagoski uh, set out with a Morris Farman seaplane, which he took to Novia Zemlya on a, on a search for the missing explorer Sedov. After the First World War, the Icelanders and Danes got together and organized some flying in Iceland with Avro 504K. Here's one of their machines in Iceland. Although only local flights were made, they were a token of Icelandic faith in the part she was destined to fly in the future Arctic airways of the world. In 1924, the American round-the-world flyers managed to take two Douglas seaplanes from Bruff to Icy Tickle in Labrador via Greenland, although they lost a third between Scotland and the Faroes. Here's one of them arriving at Reykjavik, and you can see that in those days the Icelanders used to run to see an aeroplane, for it was the very first one to fly to their shores. This was an extremely difficult flight with unreliable engines and with no radio, and for it was the first time anyone had attempted to fly the Arctic Air Route. This shows the crews in Iceland. There was um, Lowell Smith, Jack Harding, L.P. Arnold, and Eric Nelson. Those are the four who successfully went right across. Their next hop from Iceland to Greenland, uh, amongst icebergs in very bad visibility, and eventual landing at Friedrichsdahl, in Greenland in a fog was one of a most hazardous nature. In 1925 the veteran Arctic and Antarctic explorer Roald Amundsen set out with Lincoln Ellsworth on his second attempt to fly to the North Pole. He'd already had one and crashed his aeroplane at Wainwright in Alaska in 1923. They had two Dornier flying boats and they took off from the ice at Spitsbergen on the May, May the 21st. Uh, their range was barely sufficient to fly to the North Pole and back in still air, let alone making allowances for navigational errors or wind. And sure enough, they became lost in the vicinity of the Pole. And they had to land in two extremely small um, leads in the ice about a mile apart. The ice conditions were extremely rough, as you can see here, on their two machines. And their only hope of salvation was to transfer the fuel from what was left of the fuel of one aeroplane, put it into the other, and build an ice runway. Time and time again, as they were about to take off, the ice would break or, or become sticky due to a drop in temperature. Only at the last gasp, 26 days after their initial landing, and after they dug away 500 tons of snow, did they manage, they, these utterly exhausted uh, and hungry crews, manage to stagger into the air in one of their aeroplanes and fly it back to Spitsbergen and safety. Here they are, after their escape. Uh, that is Omdahl, Risa Larsen, Amundsen, um, Dietrichson, Furcht, and Lincoln Ellsworth. They, they'd been within 160 miles of the Pearl, but their escape back to civilization was one of the greatest miracles of the Arctic. Now, in 1926, Amundsen and Ellsworth accompanied nobly in an airship called Norge on a flight aimed at going right across the Pearl from Spitsbergen. Now, here's Colonel Nobile with his dog Titina. He was the designer and pilot of the airship. He managed to fly right across the pole, in spite of particles of ice being flung off the propellers and puncturing the hull in many places. The crew landed in a storm at Teller 
without organized assistance from the ground after more than 70 hours in the air. They all got away safely, but the airship was wrecked. You can see from this picture of the landing on the ice, I'm afraid it's a little blurred, but that is the, the aft gondola actually striking the ice as they were touching down. Now, three days before the airship left, uh, another flight had started from Spitsbergen on May the 9th with Commander Bird in charge of the airplane. Uh, he navigated and Floyd Bennett was his pilot. They set out in a Fokker ski plane, a tri-motor, aiming to fly just to the pole and back again. They wanted to be the first to reach the pole. Here they are in their deer skins. There, that's Commander Bird, and that's his pilot, uh, Floyd Bennett, and that, uh, as they were about to take off from Spitsbergen. Their pioneering flight, 17 years after their compatriot Thierry, he, uh, had made his, his great march to the Pole, was accomplished thanks to good weather in 15 and a half hours non-stop. In the meantime, the Australian, George Wilkins, shown here giving a cinema display to some Eskimos at Stephenson's expedition, had embarked on a vigorous flying program in Alaska in 1926 with Fokkers, Stinsons, and eventually a Lockheed Vega. Here's one of the Stinsons he had to abandon on the ice, out on the Arctic Sea. He built up experience and explored the Polar Sea before launching out in 1928, on a direct flight of 2,200 miles from Alaska, right over, not the Pole, but just south of the Pole, the north of Greenland, to Spitsbergen, in one hop. His pilot was Ben Eilson, and this was far the greatest aeroplane flight which had been attempted in polar regions up to that time. In honor of the achievement, Wilkins was knighted and received the Patron's Medal from the Royal Geographical Society. Uh, also in 1928, uh, Nobile had begun a series of exploratory flights with a new airship called the Italia, uh, similar to the Norge, in polar regions, based on Spitsbergen. Here is a view taken from the Italia, you can see the shadow on the ice going over the, over the polar sea. Unhappily, on the third Arctic flight, when he was returning from the Pole, within 80 miles of Spitsbergen, nobly experienced a sudden loss of lift, either due to storm damage or to icing of the hydrogen valves. He could still remember the crisis vividly when I saw him in 1962 in Rome. Italia dived out of control onto the ice and crashed with terrific force, tearing off the main compartment and precipitating uh, Nobile and eight of his companions onto the ice. One of them was killed outright and the envelope carrying six other men rose again and vanished forever. The Baroon survivors then sent out SOSs continuously but the commander of the Italian base ship never listened, so they were completely fruitless, until, by chance, a Russian amateur at Archangel picked them up. Then there followed a series of uncoordinated rescue efforts by Italians, Norwegians, Swedes, Russians, Finns, and French. Here's one of the Norwegian naval planes that went up with Bernd Belsen uh, working on the engine. However, far the most effective uh, flying operations were carried out by the Swedes, who flew nobly off, off the ice, but at the cost of a Fokker, which was capsized on a subsequent landing near his tent. But it was the Russians, uh, with the icebreaker crashing, who eventually reached the seven remaining survivors, one of whom uh, ha had died in attempting to walk over the ice. This was nearly seven weeks after the crash. And perhaps the greatest tragedy of all was that Amundsen, 
who had volunteered to fly to the rescue in a French Latham flying boat, was lost on the high seas, and thus ended his most distinguished uh, life of exploration. Now, Wilkins had hardly paused from his labors in 1928, because the same year, with the same pilot and the same aircraft, he sailed south to Antarctica and set up base at Deception Island. He then flew right down the coast of Graham Land, and owing to his mistaking certain glaciated inlets for channels, he declared that Graham Land was really an archipelago, not a peninsula, as everyone had thought. Now here's the South Polar map. You see, the South Pole is on a subcontinent of ice. On a plateau the itself, it is 9,200 feet above sea level and completely stationary, there's nothing moving about it. There is the Graham Land Peninsula over which um, Wilkins has been flying and saying that, that, that it is really an archipelago. And here is the Ross Sea where Bird was to establish his base of Little America in the Bay of Wales on the ice. The South Pole, the, the South Magnetic Pole, is in this area. It is further from the, from the South Pole than the North is from, the North Magnetic one is from the North. Future Antarctic air routes may follow these sort of lines. Uh, you see, this one could be flown already with existing airplanes because it's only, it's 4,300 statute miles within the scope of present aeroplane, but these ones would probably need bases in Antarctica. But before they are flown, of course, there will have to be some passengers uh, to pay for the services. And uh, there are so many fewer people in the Southern Hemisphere that it remains to be seen whether the LSD of establishing Antarctic air routes will ever be justified. Within a year of Wilkins's Graham Land flights, Bird, who had taken a large expedition south and established Little America and the Ross Sea, made his first attempt to fly to the South Pole with a Ford trimotor. And Bernd Balchen was his pilot. Here is his machine. It's slowed up at the time, but this was before it was dug out or at the end of the Antarctic winter. Because they did insufficient fuel to fly to the South Pole and back again non-stop, they carried out the daring plan of establishing a dump where they had to land to, to refuel at the foot of the Axel Heiberg Glacier on the way home. Uh, they accomplished their great flight on November the 28th, 1929. Now let's look at the poles again and their navigational problems. This is the South Pole, what the South Pole looks like today. There's an American encampment here, and their aerodrome, which forms their lifeline with McMurdo Sound, which is their main base. If you sit down on the South Pole, you can stay there as long as your rations hold out and your resistance to climate will allow. The solid ice, 8,500 feet underneath you, resting on rock, which is 700 feet above sea level. The North Pole, on the other hand, is like this, which is all this area of continually moving ice, so that if you sit down here, you won't stay long at the North Pole. And there's no land within 450 miles. From the navigational point of view, the fact that the North and South Poles are distances of 1,000 and 1,600 miles from their respective magnetic poles, sterilizes large areas of Arctic and Antarctic for, for navigation by the magnetic compass. Moreover, the aurora and magnetic storms interfere considerably with radio communications. So that by far the most reliable means of finding your way around is by reference to the stars and sun using a, lo a low precession gyro for steering. In weather, both ends of the world share this characteristic that when it's good, it's very, very good, 
and when it's bad, it's quite unspeakable. The early aviators in the Arctic suffered a great deal from low cloud and fog, but they were generally unable to fly higher than a few thousand feet. Today, those who fly over jet altitudes remark upon the generally favorable flying conditions, and owing to the fact uh, that the, uh, the atmosphere is so pure, Visibility is much greater than at um, normal latitudes, and this often makes map reading very difficult until you get used to it. Well, now let's go on to some further attempts at, at Arctic air route flying and the developments in polar aviation. Uh, these two are Hassel, uh, short, Shorty Kramer and Hassel, he's the big chair, with their uh, Stinson land plane, with which they were to, going to attempt a flight from Rockford, Illinois to Europe with one intermediate stop for re refueling on the Greenland ice cap at Dr. Hobbs's camp. Although they found Greenland all right after a flight of, uh, of 20, nearly 24 hours, unfortunately they couldn't locate the camp <laughs> before their petrol ran out. By the most extraordinary luck, Hassel managed to land on firm, hard snow, and they got down with the aeroplane intact. But they had to walk for 14 days to save their lives, and of course, uh, the aircraft was abandoned. Within a year, Kramer had made another attempt, this time using a Sikorsky flying boat, which got crushed to destruction by the ice in Labrador. So he had to go home again, and then, in 1931, he had a Blanca seaplane. Here he is with his companion, Oliver Paquette, a, a French-Canadian. The aeroplane is particularly uh, distinguished because it has a 225-horsepower Packard diesel. And they succeeded in flying across the Greenland ice cap, the first time it had ever been done. And they went on successfully by Iceland to Lerwick. But tragedy awaited them after this because on the next hop to, to Norway they disappeared and the wreckage of their machine was found many days later. Now this seemed a particularly sad fate for Kramer who had made three determined attempts to fly the Arctic air route and had so very nearly succeeded. A surprising flight to Europe, or attempted flight from Europe to America, was made by two Germans called Hirten Weller, using a Clem monoplane with a Samson engine that only mustered 40 horsepower. They landed on a football pitch at Kirkwall, and this is an Arcadian photograph, which seems to indicate that sailors are not the only ones who make friends readily in foreign ports. They successfully flew non-stop to Caldadanes from Orkney, where they are here, in 11 hours and 20 minutes. But unhappily, they learnt there that they couldn't go on to Greenland because there wasn't a pocket handkerchief of a field big enough for even their little monoplane to land in. This was a very sporting effort, but rather disorganised. Uh, an even more surprising flight was that of George R. Hutchinson, who in 1931 attempted to fly with his wife and two small children uh, and a crew of four in a Sikorsky flying boat from uh, America uh, to Europe via Greenland. He came down in the sea in bad weather just south of Ang Magslick, uh, and due to ice damage to his machine, it was in a sinking condition when he reached the shore. Only by a miracle was he rescued by a, a, an Aberdeen trawler, which succeeded in bringing all eight of them safely to Scotland. Here is the Lord Talbot with the survivors entering uh, Lake Erebon. There is Hutchinson, his wife, and the two children, and, and the, the air crew. This flight was an illustration of, uh, of utter irresponsibility, in which the main object throughout had been publicity. One of the most serious and persistent exponents of Arctic flying was the German Wolfgang von Gronau. <coughs> he persuaded his government uh, to support him by making an unauthorized flight to Iceland. 
and in Dornier Wells made three, three flights to America uh, via Greenland in 1930, 31 and 32. One of these included the long ice cap crossing from Scoresby Sound to Sukkotoppen. Then, although Gronauer was flying absolutely flat out, full throttle, to get over the ice cap, he was so near the surface that his radio operator reported that the antenna was dragging in the snow. Here's his crew, uh, Albrecht, Simmer, von Gronauer, and Hack, standing on the deck of their Dornier. Surprisingly enough, these flights were never followed up, uh, presumably because the, although uh, Grenau reported that uh, an experimental summer service would be worth uh, trying, uh, and presumably the reason was the failure of the DOX uh, large flying boat to be a practicable success for commercial operation. Another serious contributor was Charles Lindbergh, who, with his wife Anne as radio operator, set out from New York on a 10,000-mile flight via Siberia, by Alaska and Siberia, uh, to Hankow in 1931 on behalf of Pan American Airways and using a special Lockheed Sirius float plane. This is a diagram of the plane and of course it shows how most of the floats were, were used to accommodate the petrol, extra, extra, extra fuel for the, uh, for the flight. Well, with the same machine, Lindbergh made another flight in 1933, also for Pan American Airways, to Greenland. Here Charles is seen with the, um, with the Danish explorer Ludwig Koch on Clavering Island in the northeast of Greenland. And uh, this is his radio operator relaxing in a kayak on the shores of Greenland. Together they carried out a most extensive survey of this great ice island without incident. Everything was done, typically of Lindbergh, with the maximum of efficiency and the minimum of publicity. The flight reached Scotland at Lerwick and then was headed home via the South Atlantic after visiting many European capitals. Balbo led his mass formation of 24 Savoia Marchettis from Italy to Chicago in 1933. Here are some of them crossing the Alps. The 25th machine was lost in landing at Amsterdam, but they still had 24 in which to carry on. And in spite of the crews having to contend with strange harbors and stranger boatmen in Holland, Ireland, Iceland, and North America, the flight was executed with military precision. It was the greatest formation flight of all time. Uh, in the same year, a much more modest flight was attempted by your lecturer in an 85-horsepower Gypsy Moth seaplane. Uh, flying solo from Bruff, he landed for fueling at Scapa Flow and Faroes, where he's being seen uh, <coughs> being towed to Moorings. The flight on to Iceland was made in rather bad weather and partly on three cylinders. And some uh, time was lost in Iceland due both to carrying out repairs and to the fact that there was more bad weather, as a result of which he became impatient and attempted to take off in a rough sea, with the result that he capsized in Reykjavik Outer Harbor. Lindbergh, who was on his flight for Pan American Airways at the time, sent his crew over to help in the salvage operations. <coughs> In 1934, the lecturer made a second attempt to fly to Canada using a 120 horsepower Foxmoth, which was a bigger and better one than before. After the first hop uh, from Rochester to Londonderry, uh, he got to uh, Reykjavik all right in 10 hours, but in taking off this time, he got into more trouble and crashed because the sea was too calm. Uh, repairs took nearly a month, uh, and then he became lost in East Greenland. Well, after this incident, there were two attempts to fly across the Greenland ice cap, which were both negative by bad weather. But at the third, 
uh, your lecturer did get over, thus completing the first solo crossing. There can be no greater feeling of utter loneliness than flying across the inland ice in brilliant sunshine with only the shadow of your machine below as company. I, I felt like a pinhead in space and I had the sensation of holding my breath the whole way across. After a relatively uneventful trip through um, the, the uh, Baffin Land on the Hudson Bay, this chap we're talking about reached Ottawa in one piece. Uh, his flight had taken approximately 392 days since the original takeoff from Bruff and is unblushingly claimed as the longest Atlantic flight on record. <laughs> this shows the welcome he received at um, Ottawa from the uh, RCAF's station commander. Now, about this time, Lincoln Ellsworth uh, had, been, had begun to make a determined attempt to fly across Antarctica. Here he is cuddling <laughs> one of the natives of, of, the, uh, of the, the far south. His plan included making a series of landings in all, always a risky business on unknown snow in order to take observations and establish, plot the surroundings accurately. Early in 1934 he sailed south uh, to the Bay of Wales with a Northrop Gamma and had a, 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 a test flight was successfully carried out but due to a sudden ice movement uh, due to an earth tremor the machine was lost or was, was severely, uh, severely damaged on the ice and further flying was then out of the question. But the same year, with his airplane repaired, Ellsworth returned south, this time to, to the Graham-Land area. But after Bernd Belchen, his pilot, had made a provisional, a preliminary flight, he disagreed with Ellsworth's plan for carrying out landings uh, intermediately, unless a third member of the aircrew were carried. So they had to come home again. Eventually, in 1935, Ellsworth went south for the third time with Holly Kenyon as pilot. This shows the tent which they carried for their protection when they were camping out in the middle of Antarctica. That's Holly Kenyon and uh, that's Bird. From Dundee Island, they successfully took off for the long flight, but due to sextant trouble and the fact that their machine was down in performance, their, their cruising speed turned out to be 105 instead of 155 miles an hour. They became, they flew off course. After one of the landings, a storm blew up and left their machine like this. You can imagine the enormous task of digging all this snow away and then when you've done that, bailing gallons of snow out of the inside of the machine. And then, after that is done, Another storm blows up and does the same thing and you have to start again. They made in all four landings. And the last one, with fuel exhausted, they were only 16 miles from the Bay of Wales. So they had to get out and walk. Being eventually rescued by Sir Douglas Mawson with Discovery 2. In 1937, the world was surprised by the, the sudden appearance of Russian aeroplanes in Arctic skies. Shkalov, here shown in rather distinguished company, here he is with Joe Stalin, um, Belyakov and Bedyakov, his, radio, his second pilot and his radio operator, and Kaganovich, no, Voroshilov, General Voroshilov, and Kaganovich, the um, Commissar for Heavy Industry. But this Judge Kalov was the first to take off from Moscow for America. He was flying a single-engine AMT-25 monoplane with a Russian 950-horsepower water-cooled engine, and he aimed at the North Pole and beyond, starting in the middle of June. A crisis arose in severe weather over the Arctic Ocean when the radiator suddenly boiled and it was discovered that the reserve water t tank had frozen solid so they couldn't 
couldn't get it to flow into, into, the, into the engine. And it was only by using their drinking water that the crew managed in the nick of time to get the engine going again before what would otherwise have been an, an inevitable crash on the Arctic ice. Uh, later, when over the Rockies at 18,000 feet, their oxygen ran, ran out. But the crew kept flying somehow for 62 and a half hours and eventually landed at Vancouver in Washington State. They had covered 5,507 miles from Moscow. But less than a month later, Gromov and Tumasher, two other compatriots, set off with a sister machine and flew right across the pole again uh, and succeeded in, in reaching San Jacinto in California, where they landed in a field in a fog, also after 62 and a half hours flying. Due to the better weather that they'd experienced, they'd covered 6,262 miles from Moscow, thus establishing a world's long-distance record for Russia. A third flight took off from Moscow, flown by a ca Captain Levanevsky with a four-engine AMT-4 monoplane. All went well until he got to the pole when he signaled that he was having trouble with one engine. Silence followed and the aeroplane never reached North America. Hubert Wilkins promptly placed his long and varied experience of Arctic flying at the disposal of the Soviet government and began an extensive search, first of all with a Catalina flying boat and later with a, a Lockheed Electra uh, ski plane by moonlight during the winter. Here's Wilkins uh, with, his, with Holly Kenyon and Limburner, his two pilots, in the hatch of their Catalina. Although a total of 284 hours was flown, they, uh, on a network ranging almost up to the pole, not a trace of, of Levanevsky was ever found. But as a result of these operations, uh, Wilkins added a great deal to our knowledge of Arctic flying. In conjunction with his previous flights in Alaska and his, uh, his, his epic flight across the Polar Basin from Alaska to Spitsbergen in 1928, this further expedition really made him the father of Arctic aviation. Now, the Hitler War gave a great fillip to flying in Greenland, and Bernd Belschen did some really amazing rescue work, including landing a, a, a Catalina on the ice cap and taking it off again. Also, a series of landing grounds were built by the U.S. at Keflavik in Iceland, uh, at Narsasuak at the tip of Greenland, and Sondre, uh, Stromfjord on the west coast, as well as Frobisher Island, as well as Frobisher in Baffinland, all suitable for civil aviation after the war, and which would otherwise not have been built. Most remarkable of all was um, the base subsequently built in 1951 at Tule in northwest Greenland, on the permafrost at a cost of nearly a hundred million pounds. Uh, when your lecturer visited there in 1962, he found a fortress garrisoned by 6,000 men there for no other purpose but to protect the ballistic missile early warning site and to operate. Uh, the runway surfaced originally with black tarmac, as you'll see here, had the effect of raising the level of the permafrost due to the, to the warmth of reflected heat from the sun's rays. Uh, now this in turn thawed a stream which was running under the, under the foundation of the runway at an angle of 60, 60 degrees and the stream began to flow and it flooded the foundation of the hangars. So the, the, the cure for it was to apply 17,000 gallons of anti-skid white paint to the surface of the runway and this restored the level of the permafrost and stopped the stream stream. <clears throat> Many other such strange problems of the Arctic were encountered and solved by the ingenuity of the American engineers. In 1951, Captain Charles Blair of Pan American Airways set out from Bardifoss in Norway 
in his own private single-seater Mustang and flew straight across the pole uh, to Fairbanks in Alaska, where he landed 10 hours and 20 minutes later. Here he is getting into his machine just before the takeoff. This was the first solo crossing of the pole, and the flight was carried out with clockwork precision and navigating by sun compass. Blair's was an outstanding achievement in skillful navigation, and it constituted the last major feat of the individualist era in the Arctic. In recent times, the attainment of the North Pole, most of all by air, has become commonplace. In addition to being flown over, it's been submarined under, it's been landed on, uh, first of all, by Ivor Papinin and his Ice crew in, in 1937. It, it was, in fact, due to a, a nuclear submarine, Nautilus, that we now know that the depth of the sea at the North Pole is 13,410 feet. And uh, subsequently, the, uh, the ashes of Sir Hubert Wilkins were scattered from the North Pole by the nuclear submarine Skate. A variety of articles has been dropped from the air on the Pole. Uh, in 1926, the nobly dropped from the Nord the flags of Italy, America, and Norway. And then in 1928, from the Italia, he dropped another Italian flag and a, a, a cross specially blessed by the Pope. And now, in 1951, uh, Charles Blair, unable to carry bulky articles in his Mustang, threw out a packet of book matches from the Savoy, inscribed by his friends at the bar, and a letter from, to Santa Claus from his son. Uh, now a word about the auxiliary uses of aeroplanes in polar regions. In 1930, Gino Watkins led the British Arctic Air Route Expedition to study flying conditions in East Greenland throughout a whole year. They had two gypsy moths, sea or ski planes, and here is one of them on the ice just south of Amagsuit. Uh, surveys of, uh, with photography were made of the coastal fringe, and the results coordinated with the work of sledging parties on the ground. August Courtauld underwent a lonely vigil on the ice cap in order to obtain meteorological data. But his relief was so harassed by bad weather that it was actually five months before his rescuers could reach him. Uh, the expedition's survey and, and meteorological data formed a valuable addition to our study of Arctic flying. In 1935, John Rymill led the British, uh, British Graham Land expedition, aimed, uh, amongst other things, in trying to prove or disprove uh, the, the uh, discoveries of Hubert Wilkins, uh, whether, in fact, Graham Land was an archipelago or a peninsula. They had one plane, a Foxbot, due to financial stringency. But this expedition of only... Fifteen men operated with great efficiency throughout two years and they tied up all their aerial survey with, with uh, ground observations and proved beyond all doubt that Graham Land was in fact a peninsula. Uh, Wilkins having been misled by the appearance of glaciers which he thought were, were, were sounds or sounds or channels. Now, in 1946, uh, the Belena became the first whaling ship to be fitted with a hangar and a catapult. This shows a walrus being uh, maneuvered onto the catapult. Uh, to the lecturer fell the task of organizing the flying operations in the Antarctic, and we carried out over a hundred hours flying. For the first time, whales could be seen all the time they were sounding in the clear Antarctic seas, uh, and we were able to give the captain valuable information about ice conditions uh, along the ice edge, about conditions along the ice edge. The same year, 
uh, Admiral Byrd sailed south with a, with a large naval expedition. He had no less than 13 naval ships, including a submarine, and six Martin Mariners, and six ski-wheeled equipped Dakotas, besides numerous small airplanes and helicopters. His total manpower was no less than 4,000. Now, with two Dakotas, Byrd again flew to the South Pole, of course, without an intermediate refueling, because he had sufficient range this time. And his fleet of airplanes took a prodigious number of photographs of the subcontinent. But owing to lack of ground control, few of these could be properly located. Uh, and it was therefore necessary to send another operation called Operation Windmill, another expedition called Operation Windmill, uh, equipped with helicopters, to go and find out where the photographs really belong. Now, apart from simply making long-distance flights, uh, polar, uh, in polar regions, the aeroplane has become the hack horse of all Arctic and Antarctic expeditions. For short journeys, for long journeys, for transporting loads of equipment, for, for transferring human beings, and of course, for rescue when things go wrong. Flying affords such economy and time uh, in the short polar summers that very few surface expeditions can now afford to operate without either small aeroplanes or helicopters. Major exercises in air supply began after the war in Greenland, uh, first of all by the Danish expedition to Peryland, then the French Emil Victor ones to the, the center of the Greenland ice cap, and thirdly by the British Greenland expedition under Simpson to Britannia Lake and North Ice. Uh, here's a Hastings dropping supplies at North Ice on the inland, uh, 8,000 feet up on the, on the ice cap. Now let's finally consider how the, the development of the commercial aeroplane has made an Arctic air route a practical possibility. By the early 50s, the steady improvement in range and speed of civil airplanes had reached the point where SAS decided that they were within sight of being able to operate uh, a regular passenger service across the Arctic. Accordingly, they arranged for the delivery of their two DC-6Bs, the first two DC-6Bs which were being made for them by Douglas's in California, to be done by the Canadian Arctic and Greenland. Uh, the first route proving flight in November 1952 made stops at Edmonton, uh, Thule, where they had a special dispensation uh, for landing a civil airplane at this purely military aerodrome, and thence went on direct to Copenhagen. Other flights followed, including a charter to Tokyo in 1953, uh, via Anchorage in Alaska and Shemia in the Aleutians until a, a regular passenger service could be inaugurated between Copenhagen and Los Angeles. This was on the, on the 16th of November 1954. Well might the Scandinavian air crews recall the words of their famous countryman Andre as he wrote 57 years before is it not a little strange to be floating here above the polar ice, to be the first to be floated here in a balloon? How soon, I wonder, shall we have successes? Shall we be thought mad, or will our example be followed? Thus, indeed, was Andre's example followed. And since 1954, SAS have continued to exploit and improve their Arctic routes, until now, with the aid of jet-propelled liners, their service to Los Angeles is made non-stop, and to Tokyo with only one stop. Other lines have joined in, with the result that today, over 100,000 passengers and many tons of freight are being flown over the roof of the world every year. Here's a view of typical Arctic scenery so forbidding and, and impassable on the, on the surface. 
but now flown over regularly in perfect safety at jet altitude. Such has been the story of polar aviation from the era of the heroic fatalist Andre and the flights of men like Amundsen, Wilkins, Bird, Nobile, Lindbergh, von Gronau, Ellsworth, Bolchen and Kramer. Through a series of accidents, tragedies and brave achievements until a safe and regular Arctic airline could become solid reality. Mr. Gleason is uh, making himself available for uh, questions and perhaps amplification of some of the points that he touched on in his address. The floor is now yours, gentlemen. I should like to step on and ask Mr. Gleason, what does he consider the greatest hazards of flying in the polar regions in a light aircraft? Not, I don't mean jets, but lights of the aircraft you're flying yourself. Well, I think the, the greatest hazards are the ground risks. Um, the fact that you arrive at, I, I'm not a seaplane, the fact that you arrive at strange harbors. You don't know how deep they are in many places. In fact, when I was in Hudson Bay, I, 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 I heard an horrible breaking sound under the flats just after I landed in what I imagine was fairly deep water, because there were no proper charts then available. Um, the, the, the risks of ice coming in, if, if the wind suddenly changes unexpectedly, you may get quite a build-up of ice. <coughs> That actually was not a major hazard as far as I was concerned because I was late enough in the season. The, the Upton boat, the classic case of the being crushed to destruction by the ice in the, in the Hudson Bay, was due to them trying to start too early in the year. They tried to start in the first half of July, which is, is too early if you're going up the Hudson Bay. Um, the other hazard to light aeroplanes, and almost any aeroplane in these sort of harbors, are the local boatmen. Um, when I was refueling in Angmaxic Harbour once, um, I, I just reached the stage when everything was brimming over and there was fuel streaming down all over the airplane. And there was, I noticed out of the corner of my eye that a chap in a kayak had paddled up underneath. He got his pipe in his mouth and he was just about to reach for his matches. I asked him to paddle away rather quickly. Those are the sorts of habits, I think, which um, light airplanes are bound to face as they go around in these provence spots. I don't think there's, there's anything more, more to it really than that. Okay. Uh, Pre-war, did you have any weather reports at all? Any idea of what weather you were flying into? Um, well, I did part of the way. Well, the first year when I went to the Faroe Islands in the uh, Gypsy Moth, I had forgotten that the day when I was going to fly from the Faroes to Iceland happened to be bank holiday, August bank holiday. And on that occasion, the Icelandic Met Bureau was shut. Uh, at least it was shut for forecast. All I heard was that it was raining in Reykjavik, which I didn't worry about very much because, curiously enough, the sun was shining in the Faroes, which it very seldom does. And for that reason, I thought, well, it must be all right the rest of the way, the sun shining in the Faroes. And I took off and I flew through the center of two very large depressions, which I will later explain to me by the Met people in, in, in Iceland. And um, I had to fly so low that I had to reel in the air a lot times. And it was really pretty, pretty, pretty poor weather. Uh, that's one case of there being no weather forecast, but uh, really, as far as Iceland, one could normally expect to get a, a reasonable coverage at that time. But from Iceland to Greenland, the only thing one got was actuals. Actual, um, you could, when you were in Iceland, you could get the actual from the east coast of Greenland, but you couldn't get one from the west coast. Um, that was one of the difficulties, uh, owing to the communication situation. Once one left Greenland, there were no weather reports at all. Um, in Bethlehem, uh, the Canadian Mounted Police tried very hard to listen up uh, for me to general forecast, but the um, interference, the, the, the northern lights were, were very active, and the interference was such that it was quite possible, impossible to read any signals. 
And after that, well, well there was absolutely nothing. One, one just took off and it seemed to be fine and uh, landed if it was getting too horrible. And, uh, and that, that was all, all that's all one had to go by on the weather situation. Of course, nowadays, I think things have improved a lot, but uh, in those days, it was a little bit empty. During these, these flights, were you in touch with the ground the whole time? Um, no, I wasn't. Um, I had two kinds of radio on my box moth. One was a, a thing called a Marconi Robinson homing device, uh, which enabled me to uh, get a heading on any signal um, which I could hear. Um, I had arranged beforehand that um, transmissions would be made on 600 meters at a certain time. And I had a 34 watt, no, a 34, a 34 meter, uh, even half watt, um, transmitter, which um, was from a Scotland Yard motor car to the car that the London police had left on the back of it. With that, I, I had arranged to send hourly transmissions of where I thought I was. Uh, but there was no two way communication there at all. Um, one of the difficulties was that I was so bad at reading Morse code, because there was no question of using voice under those conditions. And in fact, uh, on the occasion when I was lost in the East Coast Agreement and sent out an SOS, uh, the only reason that anybody was able to decipher the rest of my message uh, was that there happened to be a girl guide, a Danish girl guide in the radio station, visiting Greenland that time, and she could read my uh, very slow, extremely regular Morse, which regular radio operator couldn't. Thank you. Listen, before the days of the radio and DR compasses, what methods did the pioneers use for navigation from the polar regions? Um, well, it was rather hit and miss. Um, the, the, the navigation method I personally used uh, consisted normally flying pretty close to the water and taking readings of the wind from the waves so that I was in the same stratum of, 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 of uh, wind strength and direction as on the surface virtually and uh, setting out on the CDC and uh, reading off from that by heading and ground speed. Uh, that worked quite surprisingly well although it's very crude but of course at other times when flying over the cloud which was necessary when the, when the ceiling was too low or icebergs and things uh, it was a question of merely steering the magnet, the average magnetic heading for the magnetic variations very, uh, very fairly rapidly on some of those legs. I used the, the average magnetic heading and uh, on the whole that method worked pretty well uh, mainly because the wind strengths when I was flying were, were of a modest nature of course in bad weather with these strong winds uh, I could probably be quite a long way out um, yes, I, uh, my, I, I must confess that my navigation methods were extremely crude. I, I had, uh, towards the end, I had some very good luck because um, I was flying down the Hudson Bay. I'd been sitting over the cloud for quite a long time, letting it clear. And uh, I wanted, I wanted getting a bit short of fuel, and I wanted to land in a place called Fort George on the on an estuary. And um, I es I estimated in still air when I ought to reach Fort George. And uh, I was looking around for a break, and at the critical moment, I saw through a tiny little hole in the, in, in the clouds uh, the spire of a small church. And this was the church of Fort George. And I landed there, and they told me at a quarter of an hour before the place had been completely fogged in. I wouldn't have hoped to have seen it, or been over there in the cloud. Those are sorts of bits of luck which do happen to one. Um, on the other hand, if one's talking about rail navigation, of course, the um, uh, Amundsen and Co. Or, always used sextants uh, because they were flying over over the areas of the Arctic where there were no landmarks and no uh, going over further ice. Uh, you could only hope to find your position by sextant. And the majority of them seemed to have got into trouble more or less with their sextant readings and had difficulty in, in, in getting accurate fixes through using sextants in the air. And that was really why I owned um, well, one of the compelling reasons which made um, uh, Anderson land near the North Pole because he was lost and he wanted to take an accurate uh, sex degree. And he'd uh, underestimated very considerably the dangers and difficulties of landing 
the leaves and take them off again. Um, and uh, as I, I think I explained to you, he was damn lucky to get away with it. Not a general question, but I understand that one of the reasons for exploring the Arctic polar regions is a great deal of mineral wealth is supposed to be in there. And judging what you said about the North Pole was about 11,000 feet of water, the ice above it, and at the other end in the South Pole was thousand feet of ice on top of rock, there doesn't seem to be much chance of getting any mineral wealth out of that. Is it in the surrounding regions, not actually in the pool of the Russus? Well, well um, there's a great deal of wild prospecting going on in Hudson Bay, in the north of Hudson Bay area, present time. But uh, people are fairly worried about the cost of getting it out if they do find it. They haven't had any big strikes so far. In the Antarctic, um, it's known that quite a lot of minerals do exist. There is cattle, and um, I think a bit arm, maybe manganese. But the problem of uh, getting it away from a place like the Antarctic, where there aren't any proper harbors, is very considerable. And um, unless the uh, price goes up enormously, it's difficult to see how it could be an economic proposition. Yes, and is that under the ice of that? Um, well, yes, it is. There are a few outcrops in, in the Antarctic where the, where, the, where the rocks actually show through. It's mostly ice covered, but there are a few outcrops. And uh, it is possible um, to get workings. In fact, um, uh, Ellsworth himself said he thought he'd seen seams of coal on the side of on the side of rocks, and he was lying there. But I don't think there's any particular reason to get very excited about the possibility of enormous wealth suddenly coming out of the Arctic and dropping this score. I was using the humorous ad for using the box one. Well, I tried to use large building bears. Um, I tried to find plants so that I have at least three hours uh, available when I got out of my destination. In point of fact, when I flew from London Derry to Iceland, um, I had considerable difficulty in taking off. I had leaking floats at London Derry, and I had to film the chewing gum. They were new floats, and the shorts had tested them by putting water inside the place instead of putting water outside the place. And that's the difference in the, 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 the leakiness of the float under those conditions. And, um, I think that was probably one of the major reasons why I wasn't able to get off the absolutely full tanks. Um, but again, on the, on the other hops, I always carried as much fuel as I thought I could take off with. And uh, I never actually, as it turned out, was very, very, was very seriously short of fuel. I, I was a bit short of one or two times, but um, on the majority of occasions, I, I always had about two hours left when I when I got out of my destination. But that was uh, those hops were, were were considerably less. The first hop to from uh, from Ireland to Iceland was about 850 <coughs> miles, and most of the other hops were not more than 650. Mr. Grayson, in one of your <coughs> slides you showed a picture of the <coughs> airship and you said it was brought down due to icing problems on the rigging. In your own flying, did you have any trouble with icing? No, I had absolutely no icing trouble. Um, I, I think that uh, icing is not very likely in the lower Arctic, in the south. Um, but of course, Spitsbergen is fairly far north and there is, there is a big there's a, a big belt of fog, uh, about, from about 82 up to about 90, usually, over the polar sea, where you get the division from the, from the liquid sea to the, what the ancients used to call the Kernel Sea, like the Ice Cover Sea. Um, you get this belt of fog, which, uh, can cause considerable freezing if you're, uh, icing if you're, uh, flying low. Uh, I don't, as far as I remember, von Gronau didn't have any trouble with icing, or uh, wing icing. Um, if he did, it was of a fairly temporary nature. Lindbergh didn't have any. Um, no, I, I think that in the summer, which is when all these people who did seaplane flights operated, uh, the icing risk was fairly small. Mr. Grayson, in your, short comment on the whaling expedition, you mentioned that the aircraft could be used for uh, observing whales and uh, 
experiences of the sea and radio and went back to the ship. Were they ever in fact used for attacking the whale? Who would have thought this would have been a fair method of getting one? Uh, yes, we did. We did what we call direct support with the catchers, <coughs> which consisted of diving down over the wells, which we could see were above the surface, and leading the catcher onto the wells. Um, uh, in fact, the Norwegian got quite excited about that because they, they were rather anti aeroplanes and anti attack, and they were being operated by the British. Because there was a feeling between the Norwegians and the British on the ship, rather. But they became, uh, they became quite keen on it when they saw that we could lead them to the wells and give them direct assistance. Um, we, didn't, we didn't consider that really our most useful task for the whaling fleet. It was rather in the way of reconnaissance, finding where there were a number of whales in the bay, that sort of thing. Um, or finding a, a bay where the ships could shelter in the ice if uh, a storm got up, because the ships would always run to the ice in case of uh, heavy weather. It breaks the swell. Only it remains for me to make a vote of thanks. I'm quite certain, gentlemen, you'll agree with me when I say this has been an absolutely fascinating address by Mr. Gleason tonight. Uh, it's one of these things that I personally am very keen about. Not 100% engineering in that sort of field, but a sort of tangential activity, as one might say. The sort of thing that I feel more than interesting to us as a branch of the Aeronautical Society. We get engineering day in, day out. These tangential activities, and particularly the historical activities of polar exploration and aerial navigation, I found intensely interesting. We are very indebted to you, sir, indeed, for coming along and giving us this address tonight. You may feel honoured in the fact that the main society has requested us to recall the address tonight. For what reason, I don't yet know, but I think Dr. Valentine wants to get it um, for lack of a on tape. And I feel it's a very, very good taping indeed. Very good address. Thank you, sir.